This week on the show, we cover FreeBSD USB audio, the QR framework, which is an introduction for NetBSD users in testing, keeping backup ZFS on Linux kernel modules around and why that is important, CLI tools that can run three, uh, 235 times faster than Hadoop, FreeBSD laptop battery life status commands available in the system if you know about them, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 365, whole year round. This is the recording for the 26th of August 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Head over to tarsnap.com for the online backup for truly paranoids. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to BSD Now. And with this episode, you can now watch from the very first BSD Now episode that we ever put out to this one and listen to one of each one day of the year, and when you're finished, you have a whole year behind you. Well, yes, leap years plus minus, yeah, but yeah, it's it's a project. Uh, let's try that. And to give you something interesting to listen to in this very last episode of your year round by now, uh, the FreeBSD USB audio that we found is a nice article here. Yes, uh, so over on David's blog, he says, I recently got uh, a Behringer UMC22 sound card for video conferencing and DJing. This page documents what I've learned about using this sound card and USB audio devices in general on FreeBSD. The TLDR is everything works as long as the sound card follows the USB audio device class specification, uh, which is what most of them will do. So uh, which USB sound cards are supported on FreeBSD? The Harvard notes don't list specifically USB sound cards and neither does the manual page for the corresponding driver, SND underscore U audio. Inspecting the source code for SNDU audio driver lists some cards that require some custom tweaks, but the complete list isn't present because any USB device that presents as the universal audio class should just work without needing any special drivers. Hardware support for USB sound cards appears to be based on compliance with the USB audio device class specification rather than uh, on specific chipsets or models. If only every device worked this way, we could just have one driver for each type of device and it would just work. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, so he says, how can we verify whether a USB audio device is compliant with the specification? In the case of the UMC22, the chip used is a TI PCM2902. Uh, the specification for the PCM2902 chipset says somewhat ambiguously that the whole board design should be considered to meet the USB specification as a USB compliant product uh, and indicates that the interface communicates through the standard USB request and USB audio class specific request. This doesn't appear to be an explicit statement, but it implies that the chipset is compliant with the USB audio device class specification. And the same chipset is used in similar cards, the UM2, UA222, UCA222, and UCA202. So, on to actually using the device. When connected to a FreeBSD machine, the message shows that the UMC22 uh, is recognized as a U-Audio driver. Note the string identifying the PCM2902 chipset from the spec sheet, and you can see it there. The available sound devices can be listed by typing cat slash dev slash SND stat, uh, which shows that the sound card is recognized for both playback and recording. In his particular machine at that particular time, it shows up as PCM3. How can the sound card be set as your playback device? 
Some programs, such as Mix or Audacity, uh, allow setting the output device in your preferences. Other programs will just use the system default. So you can use the sysctl hw.snd.default underscore unit and just set it to three and that will correspond to PCM3. The device numbers shown correspond to dev SND stack. For example, to view the volume level on the sound card, you can run mixer-f slash dev slash mixer3 and it will tell you about PCM3 and DSP3 and so on. So what challenges did they run into? If an application is playing audio from the sound card when the system goes into a suspended state, the system will get stuck until all programs using the sound card close the corresponding device node with a series of messages like this. PCM3 unregister channel is busy waiting for the sound application to exit. These messages will continue to repeat until the application releases the audio device, at which point the system will finally be able to enter the suspended state. To work around this, I currently set the default audio device back to zero as part of my pre-suspend script. This will prevent any application using the default device, such as Firefox, uh, from being able to block suspend. However, for applications that set the audio device explicitly, this doesn't work. In fact, they often keep the audio device open even when audio isn't playing, hanging the suspend process and eventually forcing a reboot. To allow suspend to continue uh, as part of my pre-suspend script, I just quit any programs that use the sound card before uh, suspend. So he's actually using the fstat program to find anything that has the sound card open and killing it. I think in particular, this one is something we should fix in the driver instead. If we're trying to suspend, if we're to the point where we're shutting down the driver, all the applications have already been paused and can't possibly exit. So we're just waiting for something that is never going to happen. Hmm. And so I think it makes more sense to just force close the, the audio device and allow the suspend to continue. But I also am not an expert on the sound subsystem. Yeah, yeah. Remember the times when we bought this super advanced extra sound card like Sound Blaster Pro and stuff to just have that in our computers? And now it's just, yeah, well, it's the small chip on the main board. Some of my computers still have separate sound cards because I found the ones on the main board often have a lot of electrical noise and mm. such on them. Yeah, that's the integrated uh, drawback. But the, the sound card business hasn't turned out to be this... Uh, multi-million thing like the like the network it's, card industry uh, and in fact the one that runs my tv has a usb sound card because the built-in sound card only does two channel and i need 5.1 for my tv well don't need but i have 5.1 for my tv this computer has a real sound card the rest don't yeah it's just an interesting uh observation yeah. looking back it's not like, oh, I don't need a network card because why make things quicker uh, in networking? That never helped anyone. <laughs> um, yeah, anyone. A nice article and a good introduction to the audio in uh, the FreeBSD USB stack. So the next one is Cure, an introduction for NetBSD users over on the uh, NetBSD wiki. So that's a whole article, but nevertheless important um, and a good way of starting your um, QA journey. So they write on the NetBSD blog that the Automated Testing Framework, or ATF for short, is a software package composed of two components, the ATF library and the ATF tools. The ATF libraries provide a toolkit for developers to implement test cases in a variety of languages, C, C++, and POSIX shell. The ATF tools provide the utilities to run such test cases in an automated way and to generate reports. 
So they have some design and particularly implementation problems that they list in a separate article that make it hard to add support for highly desired features such as parallel execution of test cases, unified dashboards covering multiple test runs, uh, the ability to run legacy or third-party test programs that do not use the ATF libraries, and the ability to tune the timeout of test cases. QA's current goal is to re-implement only the ATF tools while maintaining backwards compatibility with the tests written in the ATF libraries. And so, because Cure is a replacement of some ATF components, the end goal is to integrate Cure into the NetBSD base system, just as ATF is, and remove the deprecated ATF components. Removing these uh, will allow them to make above-mentioned uh, improvements to Cure, as well as many others, without having to deal with the obsolete ATF code base. Discussing how and when these transitions might happen out uh, is the scope of this document at the moment. And they talk a little bit about um, what's in the name. So this is basically QA being ATF 2.x. So this is the next generation. Uh, they never actually they they never actually liked the ATF name. Yeah, well, it's just an acronym. Uh, it was picked uh, as part of Google Summer of Code in 2007, uh, and I did not think about changing it at that time. Yeah, well, once the name stucks, then it's difficult to get it out again. Um, yeah, so they decided to choose a new name, a name that is not an acronym and thus can be easily pronounced, and a name that is quite uh, unique in search results. So the name is QA, and which is a play on the pronunciation of the QA acronym. Oh, I see. Originally, my intention was to pronounce QA as QA, but in reality, this never happened. Today, just read the name as your instinct would. QA or QA. Uh, so then they talk a little bit about why QA is a third-party project and not part of NetBSD uh, mainline. So um, the main consumer is NetBSD, although FreeBSD is using uh, QA also uh, more heavily. They mentioned that in the next yeah. paragraph. Mm -hmm. So they would argue that QA could be developed within NetBSD and maintained in this NetBSD source tree. However, there's nothing in the QA project that inherently depends on NetBSD, and maintaining it as a third-party package is a way to keep the developers honest regarding portability. And that's what Alan mentioned also, uh, why FreeBSD has it. Uh, there's a couple of uh, differences, um, like what to expect in a new version, like a results database, support for multiple test interfaces, Lua configuration files, direct HTML output, so you can see the results of your tests, uh, heavier code base a little bit, and then there's a section on components. There's the package source slash devil slash ATF and package source slash devil QA. So these are the, the two that you want to watch out if you want to go into NetBSD test writing or running the test suite, uh, which is the next article covering. Using the ATF compatibility tools, they show you how to make, um, in, like install them from the source, package source tree, and then running the test suite over all the uh, current tests that you have and generate a report for it afterwards. Then they have a little section on using the native QA command line interface, which is interesting for people to want to get started. And um, feedback and support is also a part of this. So I think this is a nice way of getting involved in this because the ones who write tests might be the ones who later on write the code who should be tested. So this might be an entryway into um, yeah, a NetBSD or a different BSD and into more 
kernel or user land development. Because if you can write a test, there's no uh, nothing stopping you from, hey, let's write this test first and then write the code for the test, which is like a test first approach. Or people who want to have a, a bug fix, they provide a test case for it and then developers could figure out, ah, test case is really not working uh, as the people um, reporting it mentioned. So they might as well write the proper code for it or the fix. Yeah, uh, like similar thing happened in the OpenZFS. I just proposed two new test cases and the second of which actually fails because of a bug. And then beside that, I have the, the patch that actually fixes the bug. Um, but this way we have a test case that shows, hey, this wasn't working, here's a fix, now it's working. Mm -hmm. And once you integrate that into your continuous integration, then you make sure that it's not appearing again in the future as a regression. Yes, in, in particular, uh, you know, some of this stuff is, oh, when you use these three things in combination, it causes a problem. I fixed one of those problems a couple of years ago, but we didn't add a test. And so a different version of the problem has cropped up and we didn't get detected. Mm. And as many people doing different things in the various parts of the operating system, you can kind of see that sometimes they inadvertently touch other part of the code, which they didn't intend to, but now there's a bug and the test um, will cover uh, these special cases or at least certain parts of it. Uh, so definitely check out Cure and we will watch uh, their developments because we also are interested in the FreeBSD side of things in the new framework. And yeah, people who want to get started in an operating system are encouraged to write a test case or get involved in that and that way is your entry ticket or one of the entry tickets in an open source operating system. All right, time for the news roundup this week. We have keeping backup ZFS on Linux kernel modules around on Chris Seidman's blog. Yeah, so he says, I'm a longtime user of ZFS on Linux and over pretty much all of the time I've used it, I've built it from the latest development version. Generally, this means I update my ZFS on Linux build at the same time as I update my Fedora kernel. Since a ZFS on Linux update requires a kernel reboot anyway. This is a little bit daring, of course, although the Zoll development version is generally being quite solid, and this way I get the latest features and improvements long before I otherwise would. One of the things I do to make it less alarming is that I always keep backup copies of previous versions of ZFS on Linux in the form of copies of the RPMs I install and update. Naturally, I keep these uh, backup copies on a non-ZFS file system because I need to be able to get uh, at them even if the new ZFS isn't working for me. Uh, although probably it's just that the new kernel doesn't like it anyway. I haven't needed these backup copies very often, but on the rare occasions when I had to revert, I was always glad to have them. You don't always run into immediate failures to bring ZFS up. Sometimes there are merely stability or other issues in a new development change, and you want to roll back to a previous one. In some cases, it's okay to have a previous version of the ZFS file system because you could probably use ZFS enough to just grab them. Not everyone uses development versions of ZFS on Linux, so I'd suggest that you keep backup copies of older versions, even if you use uh, the release versions. You never know when you may run into an issue and be glad that you have these options. That I keep backup copies of previous versions and want to have them accessible outside of ZFS is one of the reasons I doubt I'll ever use ZFS on Linux for my root file system. System recovery is much easier in many scenarios if ZFS isn't required to at least boot the system, get it on the network, or access the root file system from a live CD. Uh, one obvious requirement here is that you should never update ZFS pool or file system features until you're absolutely sure that you won't need to revert to an older version. This generally makes me quite conservative about updating pool features, 
I want them to be in the Azal release that's been out for long enough uh, to be considered stable. And that's one of the things we're looking at addressing in OpenZFS is currently, as soon as a new feature flag is available, you start getting nagged by zpool status to enable it. And if you do zpool create, it's turned on by default and so on. And I think we're leaning more towards uh, having a system where stuff from the, the January of the year is enabled by default, but not everything or something. Part of the idea is that when you do zpool create, it should be reasonably compatible. So, you know, if you're using the development version, it maybe shouldn't enable new features that aren't in a release yet. By default, you can choose to enable them, but the default probably shouldn't be to turn everything on. We don't want to get in a position where we add new features and don't enable them forever, because usually the new features provide some serious benefit. You know, a lot of them are big performance improvements or something, but just involve a change to the on-disk format that requires newer code to understand it. But finding the right mix there is going to be interesting. But the idea is that when you do zpool create, or even uh, we've been talking about zpool or zfs send, being able to say, make a stream that's compatible with this specific version, or even just say, what was the lowest common denominator across the supported platforms in January of 2020, or something to that effect. Mm. But yeah, so, you know, for example, in FreeBSD, when you recompile dash current, you get, you know, when you install the new kernel, there's kernel.old of the old version, which included the version of uh, ZFS. And so you always had the option to roll back that way. Yeah. And with ZFS boot environments, you do as well. Although, again, like he mentioned, as long as you haven't enabled the features, it's easy to roll back to an older kernel and older ZFS driver. It's just once you start enabling those new features, you might not be able to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and people are more likely to actually do that and keep an older, an older version around rather than, oh, one uh, migration away and I cannot go back once I'm there. But with ZFS, it's just, ah, oh, it doesn't work. Ah, oh, just throw back. It's just another reboot or just another switch of the kernel. Yeah, so definitely a good insight. And the next thing is more towards my liking because it involves a bit of clustering and Hadoop, which I also deal with, well, not too much recently, but uh, at work, which is command line tools can be 235 times faster than your Hadoop cluster. Ooh, that's a catchy headline, And uh, but uh, listen on. So the introduction reads, as I was browsing the web and catching up on some sites I visit periodically, I found a cool article uh, from Tom Hayden about using Amazon Elastic MapReduce, EMR, and MRJob in order to compute some statistics uh, on win-loss ratios for chess games he downloaded from the, billion, uh, from the million base archive and generally have fun with EMR. Since data volume was only about 1.75 gigabytes, containing around 2 million chess games, I was skeptical of using Hadoop for the task. But I can understand this goal of learning and having fun with MRJob and EMR. Since the problem is basically just to look at the result lines of each file and aggregate the different results, it seems ideally suited to stream processing with shell commands. I tried this out, and for the same amount of data, I was able to use my laptop to get the results in about 12 seconds processing speed of about uh, 270 megabytes per second. While the Hadoop processing, processing took about 26 minutes, processing speed of about 1.14 megabytes per second. Hmm. Well, I have this at work as well because um, they're doing research and sometimes the laptops are quicker than the Hadoop cluster. And we are kind of like, why do we have this multi-thousand euro thing in the server room? Uh, but let's go back to the uh, article. 
So after reporting that the time required to process the data with this, uh, 7C1 medium machine in the cluster took 26 minutes, Tom remarks, quote, this is probably better than it would take to run serially on my machine, but probably not as good as if it did some kind of clever multi-threaded application locally, unquote. This is absolutely correct, although even serial processing may be 26 minutes. Although Tom was doing the project for fun, often people use Hadoop and so-called big data tools for real-world processing and analysis tools that can be done faster with simpler tools and different techniques. So one especially under, a pre, uh, underused approach for data processing is using standard shell tools and commands. And I hope that people still remember that these are around. Because, yeah, I think people have forgotten about them and just used a new cool tool on the block. But uh, yeah, that's just me. So article continues. Benefits of this approach can be massive since creating a data pipeline out of shell commands means that all the processing steps can be done in parallel. This is basically like having your own storm cluster on your local machine. Even the concepts of spouts, bolts, and sinks transfer to shell pipes and the commands between them. You can pretty easily construct a stream processing pipeline with basic commands that will have extremely good performance compared to many modern big data tools. So an additional point is the batch versus streaming analysis uh, approach. Tom mentions in the beginning of the piece that after loading uh, 10,000 games and doing the analysis locally, then he gets a bit short on memory. This is because all game data is loaded into RAM for the analysis. However, considering the problem for a bit, it can be easily solved by streaming analysis that requires basically no memory at all. The resulting stream processing pipeline will be created with over 235 times faster than the Hadoop implementation and use virtually no memory. So of course they talk about uh, learning about the data, which is always good because if you don't know what you're doing, then even the fastest Hadoop cluster will not help you. Then they acquired uh, some sample data and uh, talk about how it uh, looks. Then they start building a processing pipeline on the command line this time and uh, talk a bit about um, how that works and how the uh, components fit together. So the pipeline grows, of course, as more results are being prepared or the next processing step is added with another pipe. And soon, rather than later, there is a big, nice um, stream of uh, chain of pipes going on. And further down, they parallelize that, of course, with a nice little X-Arcs uh, result, which we always uh, recommend, or at least would recommend if you have this sort of problem. And sure enough, at the end, uh, you have your little, well, not so little, uh, pipeline ready. And so you have defined pipe arcs, X arc, MAWK, pipe MAWK. They mentioned that this pipeline gets us down to a runtime of about 12 seconds, or about the mentioned 270 megabits, megabytes per second, which is around 235 times faster than Hadoop implementation. So, of course, this doesn't always uh, solve the Hadoop or replace a Hadoop cluster. But in conclusion, they write, hopefully this has illustrated some points about using and abusing tools like Hadoop for data processing tasks that can better be accomplished on a single machine with single shell commands and tools. If you have a huge amount of data or really need distributed processing, then tools like Hadoop may be required. But more often than not these days, I see Hadoop used where a traditional relational database or other solutions would be far better in terms of performance, cost of implementation and ongoing maintenance. Yeah. Xargs-P is super useful. I remember I first learned about it when I was dealing with the PR to add it because FreeBSD didn't have it for a long time. Don't remember the exact history there. But yes, using 
find with the dash print zero pipe xargs dash zero mm -hmm. uh, so the file names are separated by a null byte so it doesn't have problems with file names that have spaces in them or anything and then yeah using xargs dash n to limit the results to a smaller number by default xargs will split on the list being uh, as much as the command line can take uh, but for example i think actually right now freebsd update by default uses xargs to take the list of patches to download when there's like ten thousand. Mm -hmm. could probably be sped up a lot by using dash p4 to download four patches at once instead of one especially just because of the round trip latency but if you just add dash p4 to the command line it's going to take as many of the ten thousand as it can fit in the first thread and then maybe the second thread has half as many and then it doesn't ever need to make a third or a fourth because it managed to fit them all in the first two processes. Yeah. Uh, so instead, doing it with dash n100-p4 means it will give each of the four fetch commands, or phttp get or whatever it is, uh, 100 uh, files to download. And when they're done, if one of those four processes finishes, it'll start up a new one with the next 100 and just keep giving out workloads of 100. Mm. So again, this is not totally wall bashing uh, the Hadoop space or the uh, big data space in general. It's just that people should be aware that there are other tools available before they go to the big iron cluster mm -hmm. multi-machine thing. Because one of the things they mentioned was, you know, not needing a lot of memory to do it, or in particular, allowing that memory to be used by, say, ZFS to, to buffer cache the files you're reading, especially if you're using ZFS with compression, right? If the files you're reading are text, you can cache that in the ZFS buffer cache compressed, meaning it'll take a lot less space. Mm -hmm. Very useful. But unlike Hadoop, with the shell pipeline like this, you have the option to save intermediate files, right? Like you can do a bunch of the work, save that off, and then do the next line of the pipeline. Oh yeah, intermediate results. So it means you can resume as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, Unix is old, but oldie, but goldie, yeah, see? <laughs> and there's also developments in the operating systems that move along as the times uh, advance to these kind of processing problems. So, yeah, um, don't uh, count out the operating system itself for your analysis work. Probably because the researchers aren't aware of these kind of things and that Unix is around and has these things. Well, or, you know, in particular, they were trying to solve a, a problem on a different scale mm. where Hadoop maybe made sense. Yeah. Sure. So I found what I was looking for in the history. Ah. It was actually xargs-p0 that I added the support for. Uh, I think it was originally written by Nikolai Lifinov, and I got it committed. But basically, if you do dash p0, it uses as many processes as you have CPUs. Oh, okay. So we have you and Nikolai to thank for that. Yeah. All right. Very nice. Um, so when you are doing this kind of thing on your little laptop, you might want to listen to this other piece here that we have because FreeBSD laptop, find out your battery life status might also be important because then your processing job will never finish because you ran out of battery. And this article here from Nixcraft covers that. Well, yes, in particular, if you're coming from Linux or some other system and you're uh, just not used to BSD, it's one of the things where how do you find... The command, right? Like you, you know there must be a command, but how do you find which man page to read to find out how full your battery is? Mm -hmm. it, it kind of fits back into the, the thing we talked about last episode with documentation. Yeah, there is a feature already there sometimes, but no one knows about it. Or, or like, I know the feature must be there, 
I just don't know what it would be called. It has a different uh, name. Yeah. Like, do, do we need a generic man page called battery that just talks about how to look at your battery and, you know, has cross references to the tools I mentioned here and maybe even notes that, you know, in ports here are the programs you would use to manage a battery backup, like a, an AP, uh, a UPS. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they talk about the APM command, the CCTL command, because that retrieves the live kernel data. APM stands for, I think, advanced power management. It was uh, the basis of the technology that the ma hardware manufacturers use to expose this data. Mm. Uh, and that's why the command is named that. But yes, if you type APM, it will show the current status of all of your batteries, which you'll notice it talks about battery zero. But for example, in my older laptop where I had a second battery that latched onto the bottom via the docking port, I would see both. Or actually, in my newer ThinkPad, in addition to the external normal battery, there's a smaller battery under the palm rest that allows you to be able to hot swap the bigger battery. And so I, again, have two batteries. And APM lets me see both and the overall health of the, both of them. Mm -hmm. And then uh, ACPI came along and kind of did away with APM yeah, more or less? Well, there's another... Uh, wait, APM was, I think, more about being able to try to save power as well. Mm. Uh, but ACPI, it does expose the battery. And so, like you were mentioning, sysctl hardware.acpi.battery will tell you, oh, you have this many batteries. They are in this state, uh, you know, charging or discharging or whatever, and how much battery life they have, how, and approximately how many minutes that is. Then they also mentioned there's the hwstat command, which can give you a bunch of uh, hardware stat information. Or there's the slightly more interesting one, ACPI-conf, which can give you a lot of uh, extra details, like even the model number and serial number of your battery, or in particular, the design capacity versus the last full capacity, which I've used to monitor how well my battery is aging, you know, how much of the original charge can it hold. Mm. Yeah, that can be a de de depressing display sometimes. Oh, it used to be so big, or it used to have so much um, capacity. Well, yes, like <laughs> even the example here shows that designed to hold 8,800 uh, milliamp hours, currently only holding 6,200. Mm. Yeah. It's also an indicator of getting a new computer soon. <laughs> but it also talks about the current draw. We can see that currently uh, it's drawing about 2,800 milliamps. And, you know, if you know that you have 6,200 milliamps and you're drawing 2,800 right now, you know how many hours you're going to have left. Mm -hmm. That's good if you're not uh, in a, a position to be to a wall socket uh, anytime soon, like on the road. So then you know how many hours or minutes you have left before this thing goes out. And all these little desktop utilities tie into any of these um, ways of getting that battery information and display a little indicator um, to show you a graphical representation. Or you can do it on the shell as well. Yeah, it's a nice overview and um, gives you the information you're looking for. Time for Beastie Bits this week. We have found a BSD beer. Yes, uh, so apparently there's a brand of beer uh, called uh, from a company called Brasures Sur Demand. Uh, so their uh, acronym is BSD. And uh, the particular one pictured here is a Grand API Nordique. Yeah, that's cool. Being the it's a can of beer that says BSD in big letters on it. <laughs> Being the non-beer drinkers that we both are, we have no idea how this tastes, but I guess people will find out. 
Um, yeah, things like these that you found on the web that are kind of interesting to us in the BSD space can be sent to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we will cover it in a show. Whether it's uh, hilarious or more serious, that is uh, definitely interesting to our uh, listeners. Like the next one, AWK for JSON, which has good use in the um, day-to-day processing of uh, yeah. JSON. Uh, so this is basically a new app called Jock. It's awk for JSON. And you can basically feed it some JSON and then have more awk-like expressions. So JQ is interesting, but if you've you know spent a lot of time learning awk, already uh something like doc is much more powerful because it can do things like loops and so on that you don't normally do uh, with jq so it looks really interesting here where they're you know doing while incrementing variable is is higher than the length and you're printing it out the answers and so on Mm -hmm. oh yes i can see a good uh, couple of use Ah, cases and in particular unlike jq or maybe not um it does seem to also support uh, multiple separate JSON streams. So if you have two objects in one file, um, it can actually deal with that as well. Ah. So this looks really useful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then for the more artistically uh, talented people, there is Drawing Pictures the Unix way with Pick and Trough, a YouTube video we found showing you exactly how to do that. Yeah. So if you want to use these old typesetting tools to actually draw diagrams and stuff, which I'm sure is useful for things like papers and other stuff Mm -hmm. then we have um this looks very much like an academic paper refactoring the Mm -hmm. freebsd kernel with with checked c yes so this is from the department of computer science at the university of uh, rochester which i'm pretty sure is in new york and they're basically taking freebsd 11 i think uh which i'm guessing was relatively current when they started this paper but it probably took a while Mm -hmm. and augmenting it to use checked C, which is basically a modified version of the Clang compiler that does some extra stuff to it. I think they have a link here. Ah, so they were using uh, FreeBSD 12, and they used the the safe C dialect, which is basically a set of patches for Clang, which I think might have actually come from Microsoft. Trying to, I read most of this paper a while back. or like a week ago. My memory is fuzzy now. Uh, but importantly, they ran uh, some benchmarks like LMBench to measure the latency of system calls basically in the vanilla and regular version. So for example, calling get p PID on FreeBSD 12 versus the checked version of FreeBSD 12 took you know 0.14% longer uh, and is kind of within the standard deviation. In fact, you know, for a bunch of their tests, like the right syscall actually took slightly less time. But again, it's just within the noise there. So interestingly, they found that using the the checked version of C wasn't seeming to have a large performance impact. Mm-hmm. So they say, uh, in particular, there are a few safe C dialects which provide spatial or temporal uh, memory safety. Similar to checked C, there's one called Cyclone, which combines static analysis and dynamic checking to catch out-of-bounds accesses. Unlike CheckC, Cyclone uses FAT pointers in integrating bounds information with the raw C pointer to allow pointer arithmetic. Consequently, it breaks backwards compatibility when interacting with legacy library code. Uh, there's also one called Deputy, which extends C's type system with dependent types to incorporate pointer bounds information into types. 
Uh, like Chexy, it maintains backwards compatibility by avoiding fat pointers, but also requires programmers to annotate their code. And then they list a bunch of the other ones. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so if you're interested in uh, this type of stuff, I'd definitely check out the paper. It'd be interesting to see if there's much that can be gained from this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they mentioned in the conclusion that they um, will continue refactoring more kernel code to use the checkpointers and will investigate whether the FreeBSD community is interested in accepting our changes to the kernel upstream. Great. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Head over to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow and start backing up your files. This is the last time I'm going to remind you. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> um, it bears repeating. You know, your data is important. My policy for a long time has been it's cheaper for me to buy more storage space than decide what files I can safely get rid of. Well, I'm basically I want all my files to be there forever, and so I need to back them up. And for the really important mm. ones, I back them up with Tarsnap with, for my business data and my taxes and all this other data that I really need to keep. And you know, I want to be able to trust it as well. And so that's why I use Tarsnap. Oh yes. Basically, set up a, a tar command, a command that looks like a tar command, but the archive is just a name that goes up into the cloud. It takes your data, deduplicates it, compresses it, and encrypts it on your machine with source code you can audit yourself. And then the encrypted version is transmitted up to the cloud, where it is then safe for you to come get back later. And other people might be able to get the file, uh, but they can't decrypt it because they don't have your key. So. The key is, uh, the, your data in Tarsnap is as safe as the key, and the, only you have the key. So it's all on you. <laughs> it's important to remember Tarsnap and Colin and the people behind it, nobody can reset your password. Oh yes, they cannot help you. Right, that, that key is the only thing that can encrypt your data. So don't lose that because it's the whole point of Tarsnap is that nobody can get to your data without the key, including you with if you don't have the key anymore. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So get it for BSD, Linuxes, macOS, SigWin, or the um, subsystem for Windows, the Unix subsystem. So from all these systems, you can do the same kind of backup, truly, and paranoid as you might be. Whether or not you want to keep your key safe, that's a separate issue, but it's the way to backup your data into the cloud. Yes, and it's completely pay-as-you-go. You pay just for the byte months of storage, and the bytes of encoded data that you send up into Tarsnap. So if you don't use it, it doesn't cost anything. And the costs are completely predictable. And since it's prepaid, it means you never get a surprise bill. So you deposit some money and you start backing up. Uh, and you know, you'll know you get nagged if you <laughs> run out of credit, but it really is the only safe way to do your backups. You know, Look at lots of other backup solutions and be like, can I have the source code for the client? And they say, no. Then you say, well, then I'm going to go use Tarsnap. Exactly, yeah. The bad people are the ones who encrypt your files locally and then ransom money from you. The good people like Tarsnap are the ones who back up your files. And as long as you keep the key yourself, they won't ransom the money for you because they want to have you using their service. And because it's deduplicated and compressed before, it means you can even back up your laptop while it's on the road. Uh, because the deduplication and uh, difference-finding engine in Tarsnap is really good. See, that's an added bonus.
All right, time for the feedback and questions this week. We have um, gotten feedback, but we would like to get more. Um, small things or big ones, questions, comments, show ideas, topics, or software that you found that could be interesting for the BSD space. Send all of this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and this part of the show won't be so boring. Um, today we have a Jason with a German locales question, which I think I will try to answer. Okay, uh, just a hunch. So <laughs> he writes, uh, hi there, why is FreeBSD for users not using a locale for German native speakers unable to support file names using umlauts? The EUs of the world. Uh, how can I add support for umlauts without having my system set to German? Thanks in advance. Well, so are you running into a limitation of like the console or like the file system? Uh, I think it's about file names. In general, like if you use UTF-8, you should just be able to do all the languages yep. at once. That's perfectly fine. If you set that in your, uh, what's it called? Uh, the file that you have to... Login.conf? Yeah, login.conf after you uh, run the capmakedb uh, command over that file you should be able to use those just like before. I have them in my shell. Not that I'm using German umlauts in my shell because I generally don't switch to German. But if you like that, that's available. And the file names would be interpreted just as they are with EUU and scharfes S and other things. Um, that should be, that's been solved for a long time. Yeah, so I'm wondering what exact limitation you're running into like i there's some stuff in zfs where you have to decide when you create the data set whether it's going to do that but i think that's only like for case insensitivity or for maybe one of the normalizations for utf8 or whatever mm -hmm. i don't know i don't create a lot of files with weird characters in the name but <laughs> yeah i can imagine zfs definitely supports having file names with umlauts and it doesn't care whether your locale is set to german or not mm. If it's a display problem, like there's weird characters or just a block, then it's a different story. Then. Yeah, I think it's, uh, in that case, it's it's like Benedict was saying, you want to look at your login.conf and change uh, the locale from the default C, which probably is basically just ANSI, to the UTF-8 one so that you get the full character set. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And you don't, and you can stay with your current locale not being German and still see those characters properly. I uh, hope that already solves that. Uh, in case not, then you are uh, welcome to send us a follow-up. Uh, next up is uh, PCWiz uh, with a router-style device question. Ooh, sounds interesting. Uh, goes like this. Hi, Alan and Benedict. I have a third way. If the listener is looking a router-style device, ah, I would usually approach this by getting a machine with one or two 10 gigabit Ethernet or SPF Plus ports with a managed switch in front. This is a question to a previous um one we had on a previous yeah, episode. Answer to a previous question. Yeah. So a 10 gigabyte PCI card is about the same price as buying several one gig cards by now. Probably treacherous to mention, but Microtech can do some extremely competitive 10 gigabit Ethernet switches with SFP plus ports for uplink to a router or other switch. Depends on routing firewall complexity desired, but x86 is still likely the best price for performance as there is a significant gulf between consumer ARM stuff and the server grade that skips this kind of small to medium scale application. At home, I'm happy enough with a PC Engine's APU board running OpenBSD as a gateway slash router device. Only three one gigabit Ethernet ports, but as I don't have space for a rack at home, I don't need that much more. Yeah, that's yeah, um, solid. It's definitely an option. Doing something like a, a many port 
one gigabit switch with a 10 gigabit uplink going to a machine that's going to do the routing uh, may give you uh, quite a few more options. Mm -hmm. Oh, and this next question is uh, also um, a follow-up to a previous question. I guess routers are really a good thing to ask people because you get all these kinds of opinions and recommendations. So uh, Predrak here writes, the OpenBSD router hardware he uses or at least knows about, uh, this fits the bill if he can afford it. So uh, links us to Rhino Labs Incorporated to the Rhino SDNA 7130 networking appliance. Uh, not 12 ports, he writes, close to it, but definitely really nice Octeon MIP64. This is what the project uses to compile the Octeon port for OpenBSD. Ah, interesting. Also, another one, ARM64 from solid-run.com, the Marvel Armada family, the Macchiato bin. Yeah, so the Rhino looks like it has eight ports and then a management port and a console. It does look pretty nice. And it's, yeah, the, the Cavium Octeon 3 CPU. Uh, and that one also has BGNAC wireless built-in as well. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, the Macchiato bin, I've, I've heard uh, good stuff about as well. And that one actually has a couple of SFP ports, right? Are they SFP or SFP plus? Looks like you get two 10 gig ports that are either... Okay, so sorry, the single shot one has two 10 gig SFP pluses and a two and a half gig SFP plus. And then a one gigabit port, which I think is for management. But there's also one called the double shot, uh, which is similar except for for both of the uh, 10 gig ports, it supports both copper and SFP plus uh, for the connection. And it looks like it also has three SATA ports, uh, so you can put some disks in it and so on. And it looks quite nice. Mm -hmm. uh, so this would give you dual 10 gigabit plus that 2.5 gigabit port and the macchiato bin single shot version is 339. okay that's an investment i think because that should go let mm -hmm. you go for a while and it runs openbsd so that's an added bonus uh, i know there was work for the macchiato bin to run freebsd as well i don't know the status of that off the top of my head though yeah there probably was something a while ago in the status reports in the quarterly ones if i'm not mistaken but yeah, be that as it may, it's definitely a good recommendation. And uh, yeah, we, we should do this more often, like ask our listeners what kind of hardware they would recommend. And so we get this nice collection of... Because then we know first that it exists, if it's a new device or that we haven't known before. Second, uh, people report what works and what's not. And so that's good. Uh, third, we kind of increase the... The range of devices that people know about so that's that's a good thing i think yeah we will do that from time to time if people have questions about hardware yeah uh, i think that should pretty much wrap it up for this week's episode uh thank you for all your questions that you send us and the little snippets uh, in the episode that we got submitted and your address to do that is feedback at bsdnow.tv and then hopefully we have, oh, the next episode, 366, covers a whole year plus one day if you listen to each episode <laughs> once a day from the beginning. 